This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. Colorectal cancer is the second most common form of cancer in Australia and it spreads in 50% of patients. Once it does, it becomes very difficult to treat. Associate Professor Vicki Whitehall and her team can't live with that. She's group leader of Conjoint Gastroenterology and is looking at a personalised form of treatment to improve change those outcomes. We'll look at where we are now, the challenges, and a new method that might change those odds. Hi, I'm Claire Blake. You're listening to Body Lab. Thanks for joining us, Vicky. Thank you, Claire. Now, the news is much better if this cancer is caught before it spreads. That's exactly right. If it's diagnosed early, mm. it can be removed with surgery, and that's the same as a cure. When we're talking about colorectal cancer, let's just zero in on exactly where that affects the body. It affects the bowel. Is it more common in men or women? It roughly equally affects men and women. And more prevalent in some places? It's more prevalent in the Western world and we think that's probably related to dietary and lifestyle factors. In general, it's not as good as the Eastern diet. Um, It's more refined. We eat less vegetables. We're less active. We eat more red meat. Some of these things have been linked to an increased incidence of bowel cancer. Are there some areas that don't get it at all? No, it is prevalent throughout the world. It's one of the most common cancers throughout the world. It's just a little more prevalent in the Western countries. And this has actually been shown. An interesting story was they did a study looking at the incidence in an Eastern country and people who migrated to the West. And when they moved to more developed countries, the incidence of bowel cancer increased. And then how is it usually found though? Well, it can be found by a fecal occult blood test or FOBT test, which is one of those kits you get sent in the mail or you can get at your doctor. That's called a population screening test. It also can be found by a test called a colonoscopy. That's probably classed as the gold standard. The gastroenterologist actually examines the bowel. They can see what's there. And if they find a polyp, which is a very early lesion that hasn't yet become cancer, it can be removed at the time of colonoscopy. And again, that would be a cure. That would be a prevention of bowel cancer. What sort of symptoms bring people to their health provider? Uh, There are lots of different symptoms that... You should get checked out, but often don't actually mean cancer. If you have a change in bowel habit, that's the main one. So increasing constipation or diarrhea. Uh, you can notice bleeding, blood on the toilet paper. It's important to get that checked out, although often that usually just refers to hemorrhoids, mm. although it can indicate bowel cancer. And that test that 50-year-olds get sent, does that actually pick up a lot of colorectal cancer? It does. It's really important to do that test if you get sent it in the mail. Happy 50th birthday. (laughs) Yes, that's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) You have to accept you're turning 50 at the same time. So we've talked about how great the outcomes are if we find this early enough. So what are the stages of this cancer and how does it then change? Well, there is quite a a well-devised staging system that oncologists use to try to give an indication to the patient of prognosis related to their disease and also it indicates what sort of therapy you'll be given. So there's four stages of bowel cancer, one, two, three, and four, and then there's sub-stages within that. Stage one is when it hasn't started to invade the bowel wall very much. Stage two, it's started to invade Usually the treatment for both these stages is just surgery. 
Stage three is when the cancer has started to spread to nearby lymph nodes, and that is a bit concerning. The outcomes are not as good from stage three cancer, and you would certainly be given chemotherapy following surgery. Stage four is sadly when it has already spread to other organs in the body. Sometimes that can be treated surgically if it's just spread to one discrete site, but usually the outcomes are very poor at this stage. So you really want to diagnose it early. I was going to say what's the first-line treatment, but I guess that changes depending on the stage. First-line treatment is surgery. Uh, Then there's first-line chemotherapy as well. And there are a number of therapies available depending on the molecular makeup or the gene makeup of the cancer. So there's standard chemotherapy, there's some different combinations. And then something that is quite new is immunotherapy. It's where you have a drug that helps your body harness its own immune system to fight the cancer. And that's been incredibly successful for many cancer types, particularly melanoma. Uh, In bowel cancer, it hasn't yet been very successful, although we're working on methods in the lab to try to turn that around. Is it a bit of trial and error, like some treatments will try this and see how it goes? Exactly. It is trial and error. There aren't that many options available, but the options that are available, there aren't many tests that can be done to predict outcomes. So that's an area we're very focused on right now. And that's a real challenge, isn't it, with the current options, because time is of the essence once it's spread. Exactly. Particularly in the metastatic setting, which is where it's spread throughout the body, Outcomes can be very poor and you may only have a number of months or one to two years to try different options. Mm. So we really are trying to optimise choosing the right therapy at the right time for the right patient and that's known as personalised medicine. And how common is that right now? Everyone's trying to do it but options are a bit limited. In different cancer types there are more options. There are some more options, for example, in breast cancer there's some genes that will dictate which therapy can be used and there are some more options available compared to colon cancer. Uh, We're trying to improve the situation for colorectal or bowel cancer. So a lot of places are trying to implement what's called genomic screening to try to understand the different genes that are altered in each person's cancer. We're also trying another approach where we're trying to grow the patient's own cancer cells in the laboratory and then actually apply the drugs that they would be offered as a chemotherapy in the laboratory, see which cells die, and if they do die, then that's the therapy that should be given to the patient. So how would that work? The patient would have surgery and then the surgeon would take a part of that tissue and give it to you in your laboratory? Exactly. The patient would come in for surgery, the cancer would be removed, the cancer would then go to pathology and the pathologist would take whatever they needed to assist with the diagnosis for the clinician. Then with what's remaining, a scientist from the lab would collect it, take it back to the lab and culture it and then apply a number of different drugs in different wells and see which cells live. So this is what you really want to be able to do for every patient, but that's just not possible right now. That's right. That's my dream to offer this to every patient, to find out the result in the lab and then feed that back to the oncologist in quite a rapid time frame so they can use that information to give the therapy to the patient that's most likely to work with the least side effects. So what's stopping that from happening now? Is it a cost issue? Is it a research? Is it funding? It's funding. It's all those. It is 
quite an expensive undertaking to set something up like this. Once it's established, it could be quite routine. And I think in the future, it will become routine and it will be a test offered probably by Pathology Queensland and other pathology labs around the world. But but at the moment, it's not. And it's very expensive for a research lab to offer this in terms of the equipment needed, um, manpower needed, as well as just the reagents needed to culture these cells. Your dream is to have this set up in a lab with the right equipment, which would be? We would use robotics. At the moment, it's very labour intense to try to grow these cells in the very special way that's required. We've developed the expertise in my laboratory over about the last five years, and we can do this quite routinely now, but it still takes a very long time to divide the cells up and grow enough to do these drug assays. If we had a robot, we could use that to aliquot the cells into all the different wells in a very reproducible and accurate way that would save many, many hours. I predict it would take about a tenth as long as using a person, so it would also be a lot cheaper. So the initial investment would be huge, but then there would be more affordable option down the track for those yes, patients. Yes, definitely. I'm thinking about the implications for this type of treatment with other cancers. I guess you can see that as well. Yes, definitely. I think there's a lot of interest for many, many cancer types. Unfortunately, some cancer types, it's harder to grow cells in this way. We actually grow the cells in a three-dimensional structure, which is something that's only been available in about the last decade. It's been very cutting-edge technology that's recently been developed. And what it means is that the cells behave in a similar way as they behave when they're in the body. So the drug responses recapitulate what we would expect to see in the patient. So to develop this three-dimensional type culturing technology is quite difficult. And some cancers, it hasn't been done yet. They just don't grow in that way. But for colorectal cancer, it's, it's actually the most advanced of any cancer type. Is it considered a lifestyle cancer or something that can be prevented? Is there any way we can lower our risk? The very greatest risk factor is age. It's considered a disease of aging and it increases dramatically as the years advance. Although there are lifestyle factors we can change. For example, smoking is definitely a risk factor. So reducing smoking definitely reduces your risk. Uh, in general, being more active and maintaining a healthy diet is beneficial and you mentioned hemorrhoids before. Sometimes that gives a false positive in those initial tests and people are asked then to have a further test to see if that's something more serious. Is that ever a precursor to bowel cancer? No, hemorrhoids do not lead to bowel cancer. They're just very annoying and painful. Yes. <laughs> when bowel cancer spreads, Vicky, is there an organ that it tends to go to? Yes, the most common site is the liver. And that's to do with the direction of blood flow from the bowel. It passes through the liver and cells can become trapped there and grow into a cancer, although there are other sites it can spread to as well. And when this bowel cancer goes into the liver, does it then look like liver cancer? It then stays looking like bowel cancer. It's actually very interesting. Wherever it spreads to, it still looks like a bowel cancer. So actually, if somebody came in with a liver lesion and had a biopsy taken, the pathologist could look under the microscope and then would know that's a bowel cancer, not a liver cancer. That's extraordinary. So that's how they know. Sometimes that's how people are diagnosed. They have a biopsy of the liver lesion and then they need to go and have a colonoscopy. That's where the primary tumour is going yes. to be. 
Is it the same with other cancers? When they spread, they still look like the original cancer in the new organ? Yes, uh, I think sometimes they become really what's called de-differentiated. So they become almost embryonic looking, which is something that happens when something becomes a cancer. So they don't always maintain the features of the primary cancer, but they still often express gene markers that are reflective of the organ of origin. So if a pathologist can't tell where the cancer is from, they usually will do a suite of stains in the lab to try to work out which primary cancer it has come from. It's fascinating science. How did you end up at QIMR Berghofer? Well, I've worked here almost my whole career, apart from a little stint when I worked overseas. But really, it went back to high school when my biology teacher took a few of us on a bus trip and I was able to get a tour of the Institute. And it was so exciting to see scientists working and see real laboratories. So it was then that I decided I really wanted to come back and work here one day. So I I pursued that dream and here I am. That is amazing. (laughs) that's how we get scientists because it's certainly not lucrative, is it? No. There's a passion. (laughs) You chose bowel cancer. Is there a reason behind that? There are a few reasons why I chose bowel cancer. Early on in my career, I, I actually worked in liver cancer. The very first job I had was in liver cancer, but other people in the laboratory were working on bowel cancer. So I started to learn a lot about it and it was a very interesting type of cancer to work on. The reason is because research in that organ was quite advanced. It's quite easy to get samples. I've worked with clinicians a lot in my career with gastroenterologists, pathologists, and oncologists, but also colonoscopy is so common. Bowel cancer is so common. So the polyps and cancers retrieved are quite easy to access. Other cancers such as pancreas cancer, for example, that's a very important cancer to work on because it has very bad outcomes. The problem is it's diagnosed so late that it's very hard to get tissue from that type of cancer to study the way it progresses. Whereas bowel cancer, we've been able to work out from very early polyps right through to what makes a polyp become a cancer, what makes a cancer become a metastatic lesion or spread throughout the body. All because of that routine testing, really. All because of the routine testing and access to tissue. So we can perform really quite complex molecular tests in the lab because we have such great access to tissue. Tell me about that access. Do you ask the clinician, can we have those samples? And then they ask the patient if that's okay. How does that process work? There's a couple of different ways. Usually we speak to patients ourselves and ask them if they'd like to participate in our study. And we have very rigorous ethical procedures in place. We decide the project we want to do. We write a form on the project and present it to an ethics committee and they will comment on that and ultimately approve it if it's acceptable. We'll then show the patient the form and explain that the regular treatment won't be impacted. We'll explain what's what we're going to do with their tissue what experiments we want to do on it and what the outcome's likely to be. And then they will sign a form saying they'd like to participate. And actually, in the 20 years I've been working in this area and the hundreds and hundreds of patients I've consented and recruited to studies, I haven't once had someone say they don't want to be involved, which is really heartening. I mean, most people going through such a terrible thing as a cancer diagnosis really want to do whatever they can to improve things for others. Well, that's extraordinary, isn't it? 
most people are very happy to contribute their tissue, which is otherwise going to be thrown in the bin mm. um, to hopefully advance the field. Now, I should say this podcast is a general discussion and your own doctor, of course, is always the best option for your own personal health. Wish you the best of luck, Vicky, and I think that if people can get a treatment that is targeted for their own tumour and their own person, then it means that truncates that whole process and hopefully they'll improve. Exactly. That's the dream. Before we finish, I want to get back to that personalised treatment. The reason metastatic cancer is so hard to treat is because every body's different and all their tumours are different. Why is that? Every cancer grows in a different way and there are similarities between different cancers, particularly in cancers from the same organ. So bowel cancers in general are more similar to other bowel cancers than they are to breast cancers. However, amongst patients, every single cancer is different. There are some gene changes that are recurrent between patients and that's what we try to target with therapies. But the way a cancer evolves, we've found, is that they get different mutations in their genes one at a time and this is a random process and natural selection basically of the cancer makes it grow. So it's been extremely difficult to understand this level of variability between patients. And that's why it's been a very successful approach to actually grow cells in the lab and trial different drugs on the very cancer cells of that patient to try to predict what will work. And there's a number of clinical trials currently going on around the world and the outcomes so far are extremely encouraging. One trial I am familiar with, there's been about 90% concordance between what they saw in the lab and the outcome they saw for the patient in terms of response to that particular type of drug. And that's just extraordinary. We haven't seen anything like that before. So in the future, we won't be wasting time with someone for a treatment that may or may not work. You'll be able to predict the response. I hope so. I really hope so. And if you'd like to know more about Associate Professor Vicki Whitehall's important work, in fact, any of our research, go to qimrberghofer.edu.au. Thank you so much, Vicky. My pleasure. Thank you, Claire.